Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thanks for joining me. It is Thursday, February 29th, and yes, my son's surgery went well yesterday. Whew. Um, those of you who are regular listeners know that over the summer, he had a bad fall down the stairs and destroyed his elbow so completely that they now use these uh, MRIs, CAT scans and x-rays of his elbow to teach orthopedic students how bad a break like this can be. <clears throat> he had surgery then and uh, there were some residual problems. So he had surgery again yesterday and uh, hopefully we have uh, everything behind us now. Nothing, nothing but roses coming up. So I take one day off and you guys let everything just go to heck. (laughs) Okay, Um, I'm not even going to talk right now about the dueling border visits. Donald Trump and Joe Biden, both at the border. Uh, NBC News has um, released something. Okay, I guess I am going to talk a little bit about it. Um, NBC News review of available 2024 crime data from cities targeted by Texas's Operation Lone Star. That's where they put migrants in buses and drop them off in various cities. Uh, The review of the available 2024 crime data by NBC News shows overall crime levels dropping in cities that have received the most migrants. Okay. Take that, Republicans. And um, I told you that I, I thought it was a, a foregone conclusion that we would start to see a partial government shutdown starting tomorrow because there was just no way that they could get a budget passed or even a budget extension, frankly, passed. Well, they approached the problem from the <laughs> opposite um, Instead of actually passing a budget or even extending the current funding as it exists now, they <clears throat> they moved the deadline. Uh, the government isn't going to begin a partial shutdown until March 8th. <laughs> you know, you can't find the money to fund it. Then change the day everything closes, right? Partial shutdown begins March 8th. Another level of shutdown will join it on March 22nd if there's no deal. So, um, again, the do-nothing Congress is doing exactly nothing. And um, apparently, um, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell's decision uh, not to um, be a part of leadership in November, that's... um, That's causing a lot of people to sit back and analyze Mitch McConnell's contribution, if that's what you can call it, to American democracy over his tenure as one of the longest people to be in leadership. First of all, I want to share... McConnell joined Sean Hannity. This is real quick. 
But Mitch McConnell is not backing away from the bad stuff that he has done. He is reveling in it. Listen to Mitch McConnell on Sean Hannity. I was shocked that uh, former President Obama left so many vacancies and didn't try to fill those positions. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I was in charge of the... of what we did the last two years of the Obama administration. I give, I, and I will give you full credit for that. And by the way, take a bow. Did you hear that? <laughs> Joy Reid uh, talked about Mitch McConnell. There was an awful lot going on. A lot of things she could have chosen to open her show with. But she felt that reminding people of who Mitch McConnell has been was one of the most important things that she could do for her audience. And I agree. And I think she said it well. Listen to this. It is arguable. And in fact, I will argue that there is no more consequential figure in Republican politics in the modern era than Kentucky's senior senator Addison Mitchell McConnell, better known as Mitch even better known as the longest-serving Republican Senate leader in the minority or in the majority in U.S. history, and also the man who, more than anyone else, broke the United States Senate. And now that he's burnt the House down, today he announced his work is done. He is stepping down as the Senate Republican leader in November. But the fact remains, no individual has done more damage to the Senate than Mitch McConnell. No single individual has inflicted more harm on the reputation of the Senate than Mitch McConnell. And no one in the modern era, Republican or Democrat, has wielded power in a way that is more destructive to the American people or more shameful than Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell could well be called the Newt Gingrich of the Senate in that he broke the Senate in the same way Gingrich broke the House during the Clinton era, twisting its purpose from one of legislating for the country's good to one bent solely for the purpose of manipulating the rules for the purpose of seizing and holding on to absolute partisan power. Let us not forget it. There are a lot of people who are hoping that now that Mitch McConnell basically has nothing to lose, that perhaps he will somehow listen to his better angels and be a warrior against Trump. But if we look at who Mitch McConnell is and who he has been, while I would love to see that happen, And perhaps Mr. McConnell will be a little bit more outspoken. But remember, remember, he is resigning from leadership in November. He is not resigning from the Senate. His term goes through 2027. And if a MAGA Republican takes over control of the Senate, you can bet your bottom dollar Mitch McConnell does not want to be sidelined. He may not be the leader, but he wants to be in on the conversations. He wants to be important. He wants to have input. There are three people who have been identified as right at this moment in time as the most likely people to replace him. And apparently behind the scenes, uh, they've already started. (laughs) campaigning 
Uh, the one most in line with Mitch McConnell is uh, Senator John Thune from South Dakota. He has been one of McConnell's closest allies. McConnell in the last year giving Thune more and more responsibility. But that very association with Mitch McConnell may be the death of him. So who's on the other side of this? Well, the most MAGA of the three names that are currently floated as being in contention would be the senator from Wyoming, John Barrasso. He is, he's pretty MAGA. And he would be probably the most radical of the three choices now being floated. And then the guy who's described as kind of being in the middle is um, the senator um, from Texas, John Cornyn. He has worked with McConnell, but has also kind of kept a distance there. And um, so those are the three choices that we're looking at right now. But this is something that we need to pay attention to. There are other possibilities. You know, right now I'm as um, Senator Susan Collins um, from Maine said that once Mitch McConnell made his announcement, her phone started ringing off the hook. These were people who um, wanted to pitch her on the idea that they should be the ones leading the Senate. So we'll see how this shakes out. Probably the most far right, basically um, a Senate Freedom Caucus guy, if the Freedom Caucus that exists in the House were part of the Senate, Rick Scott. Remember when when Mitch McConnell faced his last vote to be uh, kept on as the leader of the Republicans in the Senate? Rick Scott challenged him outright. Rick Scott got 10 votes. And Rick Scott is in regular communication with the Freedom Caucus. Think of Rick Scott as uh, the Matt Gates, the Lauren Boebert of the Senate. This was the guy who's, don't let him ever forget this, the guy who said that we should sunset, in other words, get rid of eventually over time, get rid of Social Security. Social Security, the only thing that is keeping some seniors housed and fed. Yeah, Rick Scott thinks that that's just money we don't have to spend. We're um, going to be talking to uh, a Salon.com reporter, Amanda Marcotte, in, um, in a little bit. And she covers MAGA and Trump for salon there's we're going to talk to her about the whole thing that's going on with um ivf in alabama (laughs) apparently um an an alabama legislator has now put forth a bill to protect ivf (sighs) the alabama supreme court remember ruled that all those frozen embryos were children so everybody stopped doing ivf because they felt that they were going to be subject to lawsuits If you implant five embryos and only one of them takes, are you guilty of killing four children? I mean, 
doctors we've seen over recent time, doctors are not going to be sticking their necks out if they think that there is um, the possibility that they'll be sued or worse yet, prosecuted. So IVF came to a screeching halt. And um, one Alabama legislator now wants to fix that. And the governor, uh, Kay Ivey, has said, well, you know, if they pass this law protecting IVF, protecting your access to IVF, I'll sign it. I don't think the people of Alabama realized the hurricane they were creating with this. Because um, from what I read, after Alabama made this ruling, uh, far-right Republicans in Florida started writing up a legislation that would do the same thing. And they've decided to hold off. They've seen this blow up, not in a good way, in Alabama. And they're going to hold off. So we're going to talk to Amanda uh, shortly about all of this. But I also want to talk to you about the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court decided to do what virtually no court watcher thought they would do. The smart money was on the fact that they would take a look at uh, Donald Trump's claims that once you're a president, you have like basically immunity for life. And based on the clarity and passion of the appellate court ruling saying no, no, a thousand times no to you, that they were in a perfect position to just say, you know what, we're not going to deal with this. Lower court ruling stands, we're not going to hear this. We're not going to rule on this. But instead, in what many are viewing as the most evident bit of partisan hackery, since Clarence Thomas was found to be on Harlan Crow's uh, payroll, essentially. Well, the Supreme Court has decided to hear this case, but um, not until late April. Not in, you know, there's, <laughs> there's no rush. We're going to hear this. They didn't have to. The appellate court ruling was clear. It was, by all accounts, well-argued. They had the perfect path to escaping this. And they did not. They did not. (sighs) Ellie Ellie Mistel was uh, with Alex Wagner on MSNBC. And I think Ellie speaks for all of us. This clearly was something unexpected, and he felt outrageous behavior on the part of the Supreme Court. Listen to this. What it says is that they are corrupted political actors who act in bad faith. And at some point, people in the media, people at home, and people sitting in the White House 
have to stop pretending that the Supreme Court is some kind of benign, trying to do its best institution and start to realize that there are six Republicans, not conservatives, Republicans on the Supreme Court who view it as their job to help the Republican Party. And until we do something about that, until we take away that power, until we draw the line on them there, they will continue to do this. They will help Trump. They will take away abortion rights. They will end affirmative action. They will liberalize gun rights. They will do all of it until we stop them. And somebody, somebody needs to start listening in the higher echelons of the Democratic Party because we will keep losing every day. We allow these six Republicans in robes to rule over all of us. Republicans in robes, that is certainly what they have shown themselves to be. And uh, Rachel Maddow also had a few choice words to describe. She was um, not anchoring because she only anchors on Mondays. She was sitting in with, with Chris Hayes. And this is what was her take on the SCOTUS thing. The idea that this has to be taken up is them saying the sky is green. Right. And I think even for the non-lawyers among us to be able to say, you know what, the sky is not green even on our worst day. This is BS. You are doing this as a dilatory tactic to help your political, your political friend, your partisan patron. And for, for you to say that this is something that the court needs to decide because it's something that's unclear in the law is just flagrant, flagrant bullpucky. And they know it and they don't care that we know it. And that's disturbing about the future legitimacy of the court. Amen to that. So you might ask yourself, why what's why weigh in on this? Why open yourself up to all this criticism and open to yourself up to the near certainty that if after the 2024 elections, we have Democratic majorities and a Democratic president that your life as you know it will change. Either the court will be expanded or other measures will be put in place. Maybe there'll be a congressional vote reining in what you can rule on and what you can't. Two can play this game. Um, uh, there was a judge. Judge Luddig was on with Nicole Wallace when this news broke and... I think this explanation for not only why they're doing what they're doing, but what the result is going to be is really important. Listen to this. There was no reason whatsoever for the court to take this case unless there were dissents from the view taken by the uh, United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. That's why, though we never know, I feel all but certain that there are some number of justices prepared to hold that the former president is immune from prosecution for the specific offenses that's been charged by Jack Smith. And that's why I'm comfortable saying that this decision will never come down before the last day, because there will be dissents or at most concurrences. But back on the question of the day, if we just do the math and if you, and if you start from the proposition that, that I've advanced, that this case just cannot be decided before July 1st, mm-hmm. then at best a trial would begin on October 1st. A month before an election. There's just just no way 
even that Jack Smith would want this trial to begin on October 1st. So um, the Supreme Court has handed Donald Trump a get-out-of-jail-free card. They didn't have to do it. It takes, I believe, four justices to decide that something should be heard. So we know Alito and Clarence Thomas were all about that. So who were the other two? Probably Gorsuch. They didn't have to do this. They, and I agree. I agree with what you just heard. Why? If they didn't have to do it, if they could have very easily skipped it, why? Because they are trying to give Donald Trump the delay he has always wanted. Remember when uh, Jack Smith saw this coming months ago and tried to go directly to the Supreme Court and say, look, he's going to come to you sooner or later. Let's just get this done so we can have a speedy trial. And they were like, oh, no, 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 no. And now all of a sudden, oh, yeah, well, that's really important. We'll do that. But you know what? We won't hear arguments for a couple of months. And then, you know, we have until the very end of June to issue our decision. One of the lawyers said that that Jack Smith could potentially streamline his case and try to bring the prosecution as quickly as possible. But... You know, legal time isn't like normal human time. Oh, that's okay. You got three weeks to write up this brief, and then you got three weeks to respond, and then you have another uh, week or two to respond to the response. And, you know, that's, um, that's legal time. That's how it works. The Supreme Court... I don't know how you feel about this, but in my opinion, the Supreme Court has just proven that they are nothing but partisan hacks. That's that's it. That's it. Lisa Rubin is an MSNBC legal correspondent. She was with Nicole Wallace. And uh, she was talking about this Supreme Court ruling. Listen to this. I think about sitting on my couch on January 6th, 2021, and watching a building that I love. I was a House and Senate aide before I became a lawyer. Watching a building that I love, plundered. And I think about what the judge is saying now and the intellectual underpinnings of the MAGA movement and thinking about what that could look like. And I am beyond terrified, Nicole, right now for our country. This is not a moment I hoped would come. It's not a moment I expected would come. I honestly thought that there would be enough votes on the court not to take this case for no other reason than bad facts make bad law. And the facts here, as Tim noted earlier, could not be worse. If there was a context in which she wanted to decide the bounds of presidential immunity, it's not this case. She's terrified for our country, and so am I. So am I. I'm not saying 
that Joe Biden is perfect, though I think when you look at his accomplishments, he comes pretty darn close to being one of the best presidents in my lifetime. I think that if you're mad at Joe Biden because the Hamas-Israeli conflict isn't going the way you want it to go, I think you are perfectly entitled to that position. But if you decide to either not vote, vote for a third party, or God forbid, vote for Donald Trump just to show Joe Biden, just to show Joe Biden a thing or two, You are going to wake up. I was reading a book about um, authoritarianism and, and how dictators take over a country. And there was, I'll never forget, there was this one anecdote of this woman. And she was just like, you know, I just woke up one day and out my living room window there were tanks. And, and she was just like dumbfounded. Like, how did we get here? Well, you know what, kids? This is how we get here. And that's something that none of us can forget. I'm going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. One more thing I want to share with you real quick before we move on to other things. Um, You may have heard at the top of the show I was talking about the budget. Remember, this Friday was when the government was supposed to go into partial shutdown and... (laughs) And um, everybody just came back to work uh, a few days ago, so it wasn't looking real good. So instead of extending the budget we have now, um, or, God forbid, passing an actual budget for the next year, the decision was made to uh, move the goalpost. Um, apparently now, somehow, um, we are not going to begin our partial shutdown until March 8th, which gives Congress, woohoo! Like a whole nother week uh, to get something done. We are joined now by Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, um, who represents Illinois' 8th District. Hey, Raja, how are you? I'm, you know, what can I say? We, we uh, uh, extended our lease by one week on this week-to-week lease. Uh, and, and the landlord is chasing us, but we've made rent just in time. <laughs> So uh, do you really think that this current Congress is going to be able to pull off a budget bill by the 8th? So you have to understand expectations are super low at this point. (laughs) Yeah, it would uh, seem so. Exceeding expectations may not be uh, as hard as we think. Look, I think um, at this point, the, the hope is that we can get full-year budgets for six agencies by next Friday, okay? Um, today we punted for a week so that um, basically staffers can, you know, put pen to paper and, you know, actually write out the legislative text for those bills. So there's some hope, okay? This doesn't normally... Um, you know, they, they don't normally pass a one-week extension if they didn't think that there was a chance to get the, uh, the bills done in time. All that being said, as you know, we're dealing with the crazy caucus 
uh, in terms of the House Freedom Caucus, and their demands change as frequently as the weather, and they are extreme. And so Speaker Mike Johnson could all of a sudden have a revolt on his hands, and then you know we'll be left in a precarious position come next week. If there's if this deal falls apart, any chance that there will yeah. be just another extension? Okay, well we'll just keep we'll keep the same budget we have now. We'll just keep it in place for another month. I mean, is that possible? Yeah. I suppose anything's possible. Sure. Yeah, that is possible. And one interesting thing is, I think that the majority of I think the majority of Republicans at this point do not want a government shutdown because they even they feel that it's you know horrible politics for them. Um, and, and, and so and so because of that, I think that there's um, a lot of incentive for them to um, to kind of make sure that we don't go into shutdown. Um, I know you recently traveled to Taiwan. Uh, could you talk about that and whether or not you see any aid for Taiwan on the horizon? Uh, yes. I, I, let me put it this way. Um, the aid for Taiwan and so forth. Um, uh, you dropped out there for a minute. Could you start? Could you start over again about your trip to Taiwan and aid for Taiwan? Yeah, what I said was that um, aid for Taiwan is tied up with aid for Ukraine uh, and aid for Gaza and so forth. So the bottom line is we need to pass the aid for Ukraine so that we can unlock the aid for these other places as well. Um, Even setting aside this, uh, you know, I think that we have to do more to kind of bolster our – you know, relationship with Taiwan and prevent war. That's the name of the game. We have to prevent war. We have to prevent aggression. We have to do whatever it takes to prevent, you know, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, from you know, engaging in aggression against Taiwan as well. A few days ago on CNN, uh, they reported that there was a bipartisan effort going on in the House of Representatives to try to pass aid for Ukraine, somehow going around Mike Johnson. Uh, do you can you explain that? Uh, unfortunately, the sound was off and I just was only able to read what they the words they posted. So I didn't get the who, what, where, when and why. Is this such, is such a thing in the works and could it happen? Yeah, it's, it's called a discharge petition, which is this kind of fancy legislative maneuver where if you get 218 people to sign this petition to release a bill for you know, full consideration by the House, uh, then it will come to a vote. And so that's what, you know, I have signed this petition. A lot of others have signed it. But we do need Republicans to sign it as well, because obviously we're not in the majority right now. 218 votes is a majority of the House. So that is another maneuver or another way that it could possibly happen. But it's not, you know, necessarily cut and dried, because even that is a little bit of a uh, complicated procedure to work out. Are there Republicans who are willing to stick their neck out to support Ukraine? Uh, you would think so. But all of a sudden, 
the the next sticking out doesn't really seem to happen when Donald Trump says something about the issue. And I think that is the, the primary problem that the Republican Party has, which is um, if Donald Trump says, I don't like this bill or I don't want this issue to happen, I want to deny a win to Joe Biden or something, you know, really uh, crazy. Um, unfortunately, a lot of my colleagues on the other side listen to Donald Trump instead of their constituents. And, and that is, you know, possibly what could happen here, too. What has Donald Trump been saying recently uh, about these uh, different aid packages or one aid package that includes it all? He basically said, you know, don't vote on it. Don't uh, send any more money to Ukraine, that kind of thing, or make it a loan. Uh, you know, he, he says all kinds of um, he says all kinds of things, which I think are really designed to, you know, kind of throw sand in the gear, so to speak, as opposed to you know, productively move the process forward. That's not really what he's after. Unbelievable. Um, un- unbelievable. Um, so what would you say the, the, the odds are that we will get an aid package? I take it that we've decided to separate out the budget and the aid package, that those, those things are no longer connected to one another. And are we going to do an aid package for Taiwan, one for Ukraine and one for Israel? Or can, that, can even that be blended together? Um, so... I think that right now they are, you know, one package. They are blended together. So the question is whether they can be separated. That's another formulation, by the way. I'm, I'm down with that. Um, if they decide they want to separate these, that's fine with me. If they want to vote them together, that's fine with me. I don't care because at this point we, we've got to get the aid to Ukraine. I mean, they are, um, they are kind of in a desperate situation. And if we don't get the aid there, I think, uh, you know, they could lose a lot of ground. They could lose, um, you know, vital territory that's necessary for, you know, their nation to, you know, prosper and so forth. Um, is there anything else that's going on? I mean, I know that there's um, a lot of discussions surrounding a budget. There's a lot of discussions surrounding an aid package. Um, what else, are, if anything, are you working on right now? I'm working on a bunch of things, but one of the things that I, I guess I'd like to share with you is my uh, Opportunity to Compete Act. Um, this Opportunity to Compete Act is basically grounded in the reality that if you don't have a four-year college degree, oftentimes if you apply for a job, especially with a larger employer, and they use an automated screening system, you are filtered out even before you have any chance to prove that you are qualified for the job uh, that you're applying for. A lot of times, employers even admit that, um, you know, job applicants get screened out even though they may not need a four-year college degree, but that's uh, the filter that's used to determine whether someone can proceed in the process. So my bill would basically 
despite discrimination by employers against people without a four-year college degree who have the skills to match what's Mm -hmm. required by the job. And so this is gaining support of a lot of different organizations. By the way, on the right and the left, it's not necessarily a partisan issue because what we've discovered is that, you know, we're becoming a skills-based economy. And in an economy where there are way more job vacancies than people, we need to do everything we can to kind of skill up people for jobs in the future. And those crucial vacancies that exist right now that kind of prevent us from moving forward. You had a a town hall via Zoom last night. What would you say is the number one question or comment or concern of your constituents? Well, one is they were super concerned about the aid to Ukraine, and we touched on that. And and probably even more concerned about the government potentially shutting down because, you know, when you shut down the government, I think you really hurt people, millions of people, in a way that is completely random and... Andy, did we lose him? We are, you know, uh, making sure that the flights are going on. Okay, Andy, I don't know. Oh, okay. Um, I know, Congressman, that you are on a very tight schedule, and I appreciate you squeezing us in today. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you so much for talking with us. Always a pleasure. Same here. Thank you so much. That's uh, Congressman Raja Krishnamurti, 8th District here in Illinois. We're going to be taking a quick break and be back with more after this. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Um, We really want to thank Congressman uh, Krishnamurti for joining us there. Uh, earlier this week, we spoke to Jan Schakowsky. Uh, Democrats can only do so much. We need to get more Democrats in the House of Representatives because we now have a, a living example of the chaos of what it looks like when Republicans are in charge. Something that you may have heard or seen on social media that I really, really want to share with you. Uh, Former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull was on um, the Australian Broadcasting Company. This is the former Prime Minister. This guy was around Trump when he was president. This guy saw firsthand Donald Trump and what Donald Trump was like when Vladimir Putin was around. I, uh, I hope <clears throat> that anybody who is ready to vote a protest vote against Joe Biden or a third party vote, because we're going to send Biden a message. I hope that sound bites like this if this is the former Australian prime minister. He's not involved in our election. He's not he doesn't have a dog in this hunt. He's just he was recounting 
what he saw. And it is very telling. This is a former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull talking about what it was like when Trump was around Vladimir Putin. Listen to this. The Republican Party under Donald Trump, and particularly the right wing of the Republican Party, are very sympathetic to Vladimir Putin. I mean, I've been with Trump and Putin. Uh, Trump is in awe of Putin. He's, uh, when you see Trump with Putin, as I have on a few occasions, he's like the 12-year-old boy that goes to high school and meets the captain of the football team. (laughs) My hero. It is really creepy. It's really creepy. The scary thing is that for countries like Australia and many European countries, uh, we may find ourselves... uh, Are we going to find ourselves not dealing just with two autocracies in Russia and China? But what is Trump's America going to look like? This is a guy leading a party that is no longer committed to democracy as we understand it. Yeah, funny but not funny. He is no longer committed to democracy as we understand it. Very clear-eyed view of Donald Trump. Um, Mitt Romney was um, talking with Caitlin Collins over on CNN. And um, he also was talking about Trump and Putin uh, in the context of a conversation and observations he's made about the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky. Again, uh, Romney basically out of political life as one foot out, maybe one and a half feet out of political life. And he's never been somebody who was a, he was, he voted with Trump too many times to suit me, but he was never a complete Trump sycophant. Listen to him talk about Vladimir Zelensky, but he's really talking too about Trump and Putin. Listen to this. Do you agree with President Zelensky's analysis that, that Trump doesn't really understand Putin because he's never fought him? Uh, you know, I don't know that uh, I can uh, enter into the mind of Donald Trump uh, and understand his perspectives. Uh, I, I, uh, I think he shows more respect for Vladimir Putin than Vladimir Putin uh, deserves. Uh, Donald Trump has said some strange things like, well, okay, Putin has killed some people, but our president's killed people too. It's like, yeah, but our president still killed their political opponents and members of the media, all right? Our presidents may take us to war to protect our freedom and our interests as we understand them. That's very different than murdering political opponents and murdering members of the media and incarcerating uh, journalists. Uh, These are the things Vladimir Putin does. uh, And attacking a sovereign nation, Ukraine, without provocation and killing tens of thousands of people, kidnapping children. This is a very bad guy uh, based upon our values and I think the values that are shared by people throughout the world. And, and, uh, and I think uh, it's fine for a president and a former president to talk to leaders of other nations. But be clear-eyed. Vladimir Putin is a very bad person. And, you know, here's the interesting thing about this whole Supreme Court taking up the issue of immunity. If they decide that uh, Donald Trump is, um, is and always will be immune, then the same thing is true of Joe Biden. 
What's to prevent Joe Biden from ordering SEAL Team 6 to take out the Republican members of the Supreme Court? He has immunity, right? I mean, we all know he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't do that. But can you imagine giving Donald Trump the power to take out his his political enemies? The Supreme Court is really on dangerous ground. Um, in that same interview... Mitt, um, Mitt Romney was asked who he was going to vote for and why. This is what he had to say. Would you vote for Donald Trump over Joe Biden? No, 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 okay. absolutely not. I mean, for me, there, there are two factors in deciding who I want to have as the leader of my country and, and the person who is the example of the president for my kids and my grandkids. One is their position and policies. And on foreign policy, I'm, I'm not aligned with, with Donald Trump, at least as I understand his policy. On domestic policy, yeah, I align with many of his domestic policies. But there's another dimension besides policy, and that's character. And I think what America is as a nation, what has allowed us to be the most powerful nation on earth and the leader of the earth is the character of the people who have been our leaders, past presidents, but also mothers, fathers, church leaders, university presidents, and so forth. Having a president who is so uh, defaulted of character uh, would have an enormous impact on the character of America. And for me, that's the, the primary consideration. Um, Adam Kinzinger also said that um, during the Trump-Biden face-off of last time, he voted for Biden. But again, Mitt Romney's rich. He doesn't need to be a lobbyist. Adam Kinzinger um, has put his whole life on the line. There is no bravery. There are a lot of Republicans, believe me, there are a lot of Republicans who behind the scenes, when they are being honest with their friends and family, are as horrified by Donald Trump as we are. But they dare not take a stand. Because you know what? He might tweet at them. Oh, God, he might tweet at them. Um, by the way, this is just a little aside. You know, there's been talk that one of the ways Donald Trump might get the money to pay all of his legal bills and all of his judgments would be if Truth Social went public as a company, you know, and then he was able, because he owns a lot of stock and assuming that the value was decent, he would potentially come into a whole bunch of money. It looks like that effort to make uh, Truth Social a publicly traded company might be um, at least stalled because two of the people who founded it, two co-founders, are now suing Donald Trump. Yeah. Two of the co-founders of Truth Social have filed a lawsuit claiming that, and this is shocking, you know, Donald Trump's business dealings have always been so above board. I don't know why these two guys who apparently were the first to suggest to Donald Trump, they knew him like from the Celebrity Apprentice, and they were like, oh, you should start your own social media. We can help you do that. And guess what? Now they're saying Trump has screwed them out of shares that they should rightfully own. <gasps> Are you shocked? <gasps> Are you shocked? Anyway, this um, lawsuit apparently is going to delay, if not derail, the move to take Truth Social public. Um, one last thing that I want to share with you before we uh, take a break for news. 
I, I shared with you a little bit of what Lisa Rubin said when she was on with Nicole Wallace, but the MSNBC legal correspondent was also on with Chris Hayes. And she said something that I think we are going to keep on a loop and we are going to play a lot going forward. If not every day, maybe we'll play it every week. Maybe we'll start every Friday with this. It's really quick. This, again, is uh, Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal correspondent, on with Chris Hayes. Listen to this. What I would say to people watching tonight is you can no longer rely on any institution to save you or save democracy. We are the ones we have been waiting for. You want this democracy to not become an autocracy? Get yourself to a ballot box legally and fast. We are the ones who have to save ourselves. No one is coming to save us. And the people who want to drown us, they're fired up. They are idiots. They are ignorant. But they're fired up. They don't care about democracy. They don't think too deeply about any issues. They are willing to vote in a way that will actually make their lives worse. But they're passionate, and they are ready to come for us. There are more of us than there are of them. But a lot of us seem to think we can just kick back, put our feet up. Oh, you know, I don't really like to read about politics. It's so unpleasant and I don't really like to pay attention to what's going on because it's just, there's so much negativity. You think there's a lot of negativity now? Sit this one out and see what life is like for you a year from now. This is a five alarm fire. This is all hands on deck. We've got to save ourselves. Ain't nobody coming to do it for us. We are going to take a break for news. We are going to be back with Amanda Marcotte, who's a senior writer at Salon.com, when we come back after this. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live. Celebrating our power to bring about change. Local. Everybody has to work together. And progressive. I think you get the idea. On WCPT 820. I mentioned uh, at the top of the show today that um, (laughs) there is a state legislator in Alabama who has written up a bill that would protect IVF uh, in vitro fertilization. You know, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that those little tiny frozen embryos, those little clumps of cells, well, they're actually children. They are extra uterine children. Uh, which I think applies to a lot of children. I think most children are extra uterine children, but I, I digress. Uh, and now, um, Alabama, which has gotten a firestorm of pushback and criticism, has decided that maybe they ought to protect in vitro fertilization. And the governor, Kay Ivey, said, you know what? That bill gets to my desk and I will sign it. Well, so what's going on here? Uh, 
there is more than meets the eye to this whole controversy over in vitro fertilization. And it was um, explored um, very, very well by the woman I'm about to welcome back to our program, and that is Amanda Marcotte, who writes uh, about Trump and the far right for Salon.com. And uh, she has some insight into what is going on over this struggle over IVF. Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Now, um, the article that you wrote, let's see, this was uh, February 23rd, I believe, Salon posted it. Alabama's targeting of IVF is the Christian rights attempt to control motherhood. I think you're absolutely right, and I think we see that in a lot of different ways. But talk about how IVF comes into play here. Yeah, so obviously, like, the ban on IVF or the the anti-abortion movement is much more generally an anti-reproductive rights movement. I know that they like to claim, oh, and, you know, liberals say reproductive rights, that's code for abortion. It It's not in the sense that the anti-abortion movement wants to ban it all. Birth control, abortion, and uh, as America learned <laughs> mm-hmm. this month, IVF. And they claim that they want to ban IVF through this, like, convoluted, argument about how they think embryos are life, and and it is true that IVF means ending the lives of many embryos after beginning them artificially. Um, But honestly, that that argument doesn't fly when you really start to break it down. Um, In part, you know, you can kind of get into the weeds about it, like, for instance, if they think every embryo is a unique and singular human being, like, what do they do when they split the two and become identical twins? Or are, are those people going to now have to have one name, one social security number? You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sort and, of thing. And as but, somebody pointed out uh, on the show yesterday, um, you know, if you have six embryos, and you say you have two children and you have six frozen embryos. Does that mean when you file your taxes, you have eight dependents? Yeah, obviously they they don't really think that. They they don't treat miscarriages the same as they would the death of a child. Like it's all a pretext for what really matters to them, which is punishing and controlling women. And I think IVF, and and if you read the article, I really kind of get into this because one of the things is there's always these glib discussions about embryonic life that are on the surface. But if you actually go to Christian right websites and, and read their materials and engage with them when they're talking to each other, right, their books, their websites, the stuff that they write for each other, you start to be realize that, like, They don't like IVF because they think that it's being used by gay couples and uh, women who put off childbearing to have a career. And they do not want either of those groups of people to have children because, you know, they don't think gay people should have children at all. And they want to punish older mothers for putting off childbearing when they feel like they should have gotten married at 20 and started having their kids right away. 
Right. And so that's kind of what it comes down to, and it's really not any deeper than that. You And I, I do think that, you know, legally part of what's going on here, too, is that they're trying to set up this pretext to declare a fertilized egg a human, and the end goal there is banning birth control. Now, now there again, <laughs> their arguments are not scientific. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people get confused because they'll say, well, the birth control pill works by killing a fertilized egg. And it's such an offensive argument that people start to, to it, it, it's, they're lying on kind of two levels and it, it sort of gets people twisted. Like they're lying about their reasons and they're also lying about the biology. Like, yeah. Birth control pills uh, work by preventing ovulation, um, but so you'll sometimes hear even well-meaning liberal people repeat the talking point that birth control pills work by killing fertilized eggs. They do not, but that's definitely the pretext that they're setting up to use to ban the birth control pill. That's the end goal here. I agree with you that this whole movement is um, some sort of bizarre Christian nationalist effort to turn back the clock. I mean, we've heard, Amanda, Republicans say things like, you know, as far as, you know, maybe we should do away with no-fault divorce, you know, um, um, and that that was that to make divorce more difficult. This is clearly, clearly designed to rein in women and rein in the rights that that women have. And I know you start your article by talking about Nikki Haley, how once this uh, Alabama Supreme Court decision came around that she told CNN she agreed with the decision and and that she believed frozen embryos were babies. Well, first of all, I would love to know how Nikki Haley comes to the positions that she espouses, Um, because as I've seen Nikki Haley uh, do whatever it takes to um, appeal to whomever she's speaking to in the moment. And it seems and even Senate leadership uh, told there was a memo that was released that if you're running to hold on to your seat or if you're a Republican trying to win a Senate seat, for God's sakes, don't, you know, don't say that you're against IVF. You're, suppo- you're for IVF. IVF is good. And yet when Tammy Duckworth put a bill in the Senate to say, yeah, let's protect IVF, Republicans voted against it. So I'm very confused, Amanda. Um, aside yeah. from aside from the Christian nationalists, and we know where they're going and what they want, why are the the regular Republicans seem uh, to be unsure of which is the safe uh, position to take on this issue? What do you, what do you see? Um, I don't think it's that confusing, honestly. They're just lying. Like the plan <laughs> is very straightforward. Like. Claim to be for IVF, get in power, get Donald Trump elected, get across that finish line, and then they're going to pass the Life Begins at Conception Bill, whatever the hell it's called, and that bans IVF. It's going to be used to start harassing, you know, people over birth control. It's going to be used to start imprisoning pregnant women. 
with false accusations that they're not doing enough to take care of their health. It's, it's like, it's, that's, that's what's going to happen. And they are just trying to hand wave. And unfortunately it's successful because these positions are so extreme, extreme that it is difficult to convince American voters that no, they really mean it. Like they really mean it when they say they believe life begins at conception that's not just some BS. They they really are going to try to pass laws to make that a fact that we build law around. Amanda, at this point in time in the United States, with where we've seen what we've seen, how can people not take this in? How is what you just said possible? Is this people who are not paying attention, not reading anything, those low-information voters? Are these people who believe that Donald Trump is the savior? How is it possible for people not to understand what we are on the precipice of? Well, I think what happens when you're trying to explain this to folks is, like, they look at the people that are backing these laws and they go, well, but they use reproductive health care services that." Like, Nikki Haley, you know, she's playing a bunch of word games, but it kind of sounds like she's done IVF, if I'm being honest. Um, I had, uh, when this law first was passed, I know Mike Pence and his wife had their son via in vitro fertilization. And when this first came out, I read in a couple of places that Nikki Haley had also used IVF, but nobody has confirmed that. And she certainly ain't talking about it. Yeah, what she kind of alludes to in terms of, like, what happened to her fertility issues, uh, I hate to say it, I know enough about this to say probably IVF is what a doctor would tell her to do. So anyway, I'm speculating there, but the point is she's probably used contraception, and, and voters definitely believe that these folks use contraception, they use IVF, they use abortion, and they're correct, like... If you listen to focus groups of of undecided voters on Donald Trump, they refuse to believe that he's anti-choice because they go, well, he's probably paid for an abortion. And what they're not understanding is that, you know, (laughs) like Donald Trump both would pay for an abortion and get it out of his hair and then immediately imprison the woman who aborted a pregnancy he caused. Like, it's like what... Without question, and and they just need to remember that, because I think if you pointed that out to them, I think a lot of them would go, yeah, yeah, that's true, especially if you thought it would benefit him, and that's all there is to it. Like, they, there's, you know, a tendency to think that they themselves will not be affected. A lot of these leaders are old enough that those, (coughs) the days of needing these services are behind them, and... They just, there's a real, I got mine, screw you mentality to a lot of that. And, you know, I I, I fail to understand why people are struggling to wrap their minds around, you know, garden variety hypocrisy. But here we are. and, and, And I think people just need to understand that, like, Republicans know just as they knew when they banned abortion that women would start getting mutilated, women would start getting killed. They know that this is going to be really bad. They just don't 
care. And I, I, it's as simple as that. And they don't care because it's, um, it's the politically expedient thing to do, or they just don't care because, um, you know, uh, they understand that um, especially white people will react positively to anything that is perceived as keeping uh, dark people and gay people and those uppity women uh, in their place. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a a sense that they've lost female voters to a large extent. You hear, like, Matt Gates was saying, you know, they don't need female voters because they can build up their base of male voters. Um, they can get more men on board. I mean, I'm a little skeptical of this, like, idea that just going hard against any technology that makes it easier to have sex without getting pregnant is is really the way to male hearts, you know? Yeah. But it is true that there is a large number of men who are incredibly resentful of women's gains, incredibly resentful of women's equality, and are happy with the trade-off of have running higher personal risks themselves of all the downstream effects of unplanned pregnancy. If, if, if the trade-off is getting women under the thumb, but I already think all those guys already vote for Republicans. You know, I, I don't know that there's like a huge, like gross potential there. And well, you know, you make an I, interesting point. A lot point. of them do think that. Uh, one of the columnists uh, whose newsletter I get is Jonathan Last, who's one of, the, one of the writers for The Bulwark. And he wrote something a few weeks ago that I thought was really interesting, and I'd like to get your take on it. He said, you know, Donald Trump looks un- absolutely unstoppable now, and he probably is. But one thing that I would suggest is that right now Donald Trump is at the peak of his popularity that the chances of him becoming more and more and more popular, he's basically got his followers, he's got his devoted uh, people, but that audience is probably as as big as it's going to be. Whereas, he said, with Joe Biden, and again, he wrote this a couple of months ago, Joe Biden, you know, everybody's talking about how he's, you know, the polls are looking bad, but Joe Biden has the potential to pick up a lot of support going forward. And so he was sort of like, basically what he was saying is, don't worry about Trump. He's peaking and he's got no other place to go to get more voters, whereas Joe Biden can win. There's this whole group of people that he could encourage to um, be more vocal supporters of, of his. What do you think of that? I think that's exactly right. I mean, I don't like... You know, I, I wouldn't say that Trump can't win, like. It, but I think everyone knows that the path to, to Trump winning is through demoralizing Biden voters, right? Like, getting Biden voters to, um, like, people who voted for Biden in 2020 to stay home. But we're not, we're not going to see like new unveined like new veins of support for Donald Trump open up. I think we're he's pretty much hit his ceiling. I think that um 
you know, this is just a, a rallying issue here at this point. Um, and, uh, you know, he did make some small gains with male voters, male men of color. I mean, I think it's a little overrated. I don't like huge. Like, he got some black male voters and some Hispanic male voters by winning on this sort of sexist um, t- campaign in 2020. But, I, again, I don't know how much he can build on that, I think. At this point, he's kind of a known entity, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> it would seem so. Uh, yeah, whereas Biden now, you know, I mean, the question is, can Biden educate voters on what he's done, what he plans to do, where he's going, all that stuff? And if he can, I think he can win. If he can't, and we have this, like, huge sit out the uh, election like we did in 2016, we may be screwed. Yeah. Um, Amanda, we have a caller who wants to join our conversation. Uh, Jim is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Jim, you're on with me and Amanda Marcotte. Go ahead. Hi. I think that the political, uh, that the Republican Party, ambition is outstripped common sense. If they if they intend to uh, put their morality on American citizens with a bayonet, the point of a bayonet. I don't think Americans will stand for it. And I'm confident, I'm absolutely confident Joe Biden was this election. But I also believe that this could be the smell of a landslide. That's just my opinion. I've been around for a lot of elections. But I don't think the Democrats in the United States are going to stand for another party forcing their morality by gunpoint on the rest of the citizenry in the United States. And anyway, you guys have a good afternoon. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Amanda, what do you think about Jim's comments? I mean, I think that that's the hope for that Democrats are backing. Um, I'm really going to run on that particular argument. Um, I think, you know, a couple points of caution. One, Joe Biden is unfortunately not a real good avatar for that particular, like, social liberalism. He's just not kind of known for it. He He's very bad at, like, talking about reproductive rights in a, a persuasive and compelling way. He used to be anti-abortion, so his, his support is tepid at best. It's obviously political. So there's, like... There's issues here. So, you know, the the place where they need to really hit people is make sure that folks understand that it doesn't kind of matter where Joe Biden is personally or even Donald Trump is personally. Like what matters is what kind of bills they're going to sign. And if Democrats can get a majority in Congress and get Biden in the White House, they will pass like a bill protecting abortion rights and vice versa. If Trump is in office, he'll ban abortion. Do you think that uh, what you just said about uh, Biden's ambivalence, do you think that's why they have Kamala Harris out on the campaign trail talking about these issues? Because she's pretty fired up when she talks about it. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly why they're doing it, because they know that Biden looks like he's sucking an egg when he talks about abortion rights. And I I really wish it weren't true, but it is what it is. I have to just get your take on something. Sarah Longwell, who also is one of the contributors for The Bulwark, she often does these focus groups. And um, she did a focus group with Trump supporters. 
and she asked them how they felt about a woman president. And all of the, it was a small focus group, but they all said, men and women alike, that they didn't think that a woman should be president. And, and I don't care about what the men say, but what struck me was the women said, just, you know, oh boy, you know, but if when she's having her time of the month, you know, maybe she'll be like too emotional. And, you know, women, the other woman said, well, you know, women are nurturers. They're not cut out to be like hard and make the tough decisions. And it was all of this nonsense that I thought we had moved past. Um, I was just horrified to hear those things. And, you know, these were these were nice, perfectly nice women. Oh, you know, well, women are great, but we're just not cut out to be president. As a younger as a younger woman, what does that kind of talk? How does it resonate with you? I'm not surprised. I mean, here's the thing about conservative women: they have two choices in life. They can either admit that the sexism is wrong, and that the men in the life, their life, and the community that they live in is a bunch of people that are always saying false things about false things about them to be mean just to keep them oppressed. And that's a bummer. That's a bummer thing to admit to yourself. It's a bummer to admit that your husband is a misogynist. It's a bummer to admit that everyone that you consider like in your community is, you know, spread stereotypes about you just so that you can't have any power. Or so the other alternative is to just sort of believe it, you know, to say, okay, well, we we women really are inferior and, and, and just decide that that's just just and true. And then you can kind of live in peace with the people around you. This is why feminists often say, like, sexism is a little different than racism in that, like, you know, women live cheek by the cheek by jowl with cheek and jowl with men, right? They, they, they have to find a way to get along. It's your family. It's your friends. It's, it's very intertwined. And if men in your life who have more power than you are really adamant, um, with these sexist beliefs, like either you go along and you, you know, you know, internalize misogyny, or you are just constantly in distress, and I, I get it. But the problem, of course, is I don't. I doubt that very much that those women are very nice at all. I bet they're bullies. <laughs> I bet that they they push this BS on other women. Yeah, I'm afraid you're probably right. Especially what breaks my heart is their daughters. Um, Amanda Marcotte is a senior writer for Salon.com. We are going to take a break, and we're going to be back with our conversation with her after this. Listen to the Tom Hartman Radio Program every weekday from 11 to 2 right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Amanda Marcotte is a senior writer. She focuses on politics and Trump for Salon.com. She is joining us today. And Amanda, we have another caller wants to join our conversation. Dan is calling in from Plainfield, Illinois. Hello, Dan. You're on with me and Amanda. Was your question or comment? Yeah. Hello, ladies. I hope you all are well. Listen, I 
I think we're being very naive, and I'll tell you why. I think we're in extreme danger of losing this election and another Donald Trump presidency. Uh, I, I, I'm retired, but I drive Uber 40 hours a week and talk to all kinds of people. And all I ever hear, people are really angry about, quote, open borders. And people are really, you know, and it's all Joe Biden's fault. They think Joe Biden just opened the borders. Uh, the other thing I hear is, you know, inflation. And this is all Joe Biden's fault. The high interest rates. Uh, and then you, you, know, you see these videos online in New York City and these places. These people are really getting angry about this huge amount of migrants that have been sent into their area. And I think it's particularly scaring elderly people. And I think one of the problems with Joe Biden is that I know this isn't true, but he's given the impression that this issue really isn't something that is that concerns him. And I think we're in real trouble here. So do you think, um, Dan, the fact that Biden is traveling to the border, do you think that'll have any influence? And also, I'm curious, um, because it sounds like the comments you are getting are the Republican talking points that Fox Cable pushes all the time. There are some older folks in my circle, and they sometimes spout what are clearly uh, the, the talking points that they heard on Fox. Do you get the sense that these people are really uh, just regurgitating what they've heard on television? I do. I do, Joan. And um, for an example, Trump repeated the lie that that border deal would have still let 5,000 a day in, which was a complete lie. But yeah. I hear that report regurgitated. And these people don't care that Republicans want to cut their Social Security. Uh, they don't care that that there's Republicans who would force their their uh, their grandchildren to have their rapist baby. It's all about, they got them really revved up about this migrant thing. You know, Dan, thank you for the call, Dan. And I think Dan makes a really interesting point. Somebody, uh, we were talking about, you know, who the like most dangerous person is right now. And, you know, people were saying, oh, you know, it's Trump. I think that the, the most dangerous threat to our democracy comes from Rupert Murdoch and his son, Lachlan Murdoch. I think Fox has done more to undermine democracy in this country than any single person. And that includes Donald Trump, because I know so many and especially older folks who have it on all the time and they don't get the truth. Um, you know, when big things are happening, but those big things are anti-Trump, Fox doesn't even carry them. It doesn't it doesn't even show up in the programming. And I think that I hear this all the time. Well, you know, well, you know, inflation's bad. Well, actually, you know, and, and you know, and I'm not expecting as an Uber driver, Dan, to do this, but you say, you know, what do you mean by that? And what does that look like to you? And where did you get that information? We have to really, this is where I think the citizen voters come in. I don't know, other than person by person, instance by instance, how to rebut this kind of stuff. But I think that the, the, the misinformation that we are being, that people are being fed on Fox is just about the single biggest danger to our democracy right now. What are your thoughts on that? 
Amanda, are you still there? Huh. Oh, okay, Andy, uh, we we uh, dropped our connection to Amanda. Uh, Andy, back at the studio, is working to reestablish that, which is really too bad because, you know, it means I'm going to have to repeat that rant all over again. But I really do feel strongly about that. I know so many good-hearted, otherwise well-meaning people who just absorb everything they hear on Fox. And I, I'm sad to say my generation, the older generation of Americans, we grew up saying things like, well, if, it, if it's on television, it must be true. And I think there's an, especially an older demographic that only watches Fox and believes the talking points that they hear. Um, Amanda, I don't know if you heard everything that Dan from Plainfield had to say, but he was talking about his customers in his Uber and how they're how they're complaining about how Joe Biden has opened the borders and how in, inflation is just killing everybody. And and I said to him, I said, do they do you get the impression, Dan, that they just are Fox listeners and that they're regurgitating the talking points they hear on television? And he said, yes, absolutely. And I don't know how. We fight that, Amanda. What are your thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt right-wing propaganda works. I I think, you know, and and the worst part is, like, I suspect a lot of people aren't Fox viewers. The most that any Fox program gets is, like, two to three million people, and we live in a country of 380 million people, uh, you know, in any given program. So it's really, like, the stuff just sort of gets... They pump it in the bloodstream and then it kind of gets out there, right? And that's, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, the worst problem. Um, you know, fighting it is tough. I mean, I think you just have to, you know, kind of push the storylines that are factual. Like, I, I think, I, I really think that people listening to this program probably have more power than you or I or any talking head does. Because they're the people who can have the conversations with the people that are being misled in their lives. They can um, share good information with them. There was a great Washington Post article recently about how the booming economy is because we have so much immigration, right? Yeah. Um, like, talk about, you know, how, you know, I think if you have a conspiracy-minded person in your life that just gets caught up in this thing, you know, give them a real one. Point out that the goal is to take away birth control and abortion and then ban immigration and try to make up the labor shortfall to enforce childbirth. Like, that's a conspiracy theory that just happens to be true, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't even really hide it that well. But, you know, I think that will help some of the – like, you've got to – like. The only way we're going to win this is if people that are sort of trusted friends and relatives, if people that are caught up in disinformation, talk, try to be calm, don't argue with them, just like ask them some questions, ask them why they believe that, where they got that, say, you know, there's good information out there, um, you know, just trying to keep people from getting defensive because people get defensive mm-hmm. super quick. And, and that's the best we can do, but like... Yeah, I mean, it's it's very troubling. I, I don't, I think there is some evidence that while the migrant issue is being hella hyped on TV, 
and therefore getting talked about a lot is not actually at the end of the day what's moving votes. We're looking at all these special elections and like Republicans go hard on the immigration thing on their lives about that. And yet, in the end, the Democrat wins anyway. So, you know, I think there's a lot of push come to shove mentality at the, you know, the voting booth. Like, uh, people enjoy talking about racist crap to their Uber drivers, it sounds like (laughs) to me. But, um, you know, they also don't want to see abortion banned. Yeah. Yeah, we um we have opened the floodgates. Uh, Dan Schaefer's on the line. He actually, Amanda, is one of our weekend radio hosts here on WCPT, and he's eager to get in this conversation. Dan, you're on with me in Salon.com's Amanda Marcotte. Go ahead. Hey, Joan. Hey, Amanda. Um, I'm loving this conversation. Um, I wanted to just uh, point out that it only took 79,000 votes for Donald Trump to win the presidency in 2016. And as Amanda Mm -hmm. pointed out, we're a country of 300 million people. So states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, those are key states. Uh, I think it was it was a it was a win for for Joe to get Arizona and Georgia. I don't know if that's going to happen again, but I think we just need to keep that in mind that it only takes 80,000 people in a few states to determine the presidential election. And we could easily have a president, Donald Trump, again. Well, yeah, the electoral college. Yeah. And the power of the and the smaller states. That's that's my fear, Amanda, is that especially if we, you know, I mean, it appears so far, it appears that no labels is imploding. You know, but we still have RFK Jr. and um, and, you know, the potential for enough third party competition to really screw things up. (laughs) Yeah, maybe I will see. I I will say, like, um, I live here in Pennsylvania and um, for the first time in, God, decades, (laughs) forever and ever and ever. Democrats have finally taken over the state house. We had another special election in Bucks County uh, a few weeks ago. Um, it's one of the swing swingiest districts in the country. It, it's like they say where Bucks County goes, goes the nation. And the Democrat won with like 80-something percent of the vote. Like, um, I think Michigan is a little scarier. It's looking a little scarier. But, again, they also have the trifecta in their state government. Wisconsin just became a democracy again, so that's super exciting. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, we have – there's green shoots. And I'm not saying don't be worried. I am saying that don't – there's a lot of people out there who started to talk about Donald Trump as if he's inevitable. And this is what fascists want, right? Fascists want the I am inevitable. I am the weather. There's nothing that can stop me. I am forever. I am God. That's Mm -hmm. the narrative that they get behind because the whole point is creating learned helplessness in their opponents. If people think – there is no way to stop Donald Trump, that he is magical, that he's a god, that there's no that he cannot be defeated, that he always wins, even though he lost in twenty twenty, even though he lost to E. Jean Carroll, even though he's losing <laughs> his business. Like just like this narrative that he is undefeatable has to end because if you believe that you won't fight. 
He yeah. can be defeated. So people, yes, this is scary, but take that fear and use it to pick up a phone and start making phone calls. Use it to do postcard writing campaigns. Do get out and vote work this year. You know, volunteer, 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 because sitting around acting like Donald Trump is inevitable is a self-fulfilling prophecy, you yeah. know? Yeah, Exactly. Uh, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Let's uh, let's see. I think let, we're going to squeeze in one more call before we go to break. Phil's calling from the north side of Chicago. Phil, go ahead. You're on with me and Amanda Marcotte. Good afternoon, Joan. Good afternoon. OK, I'll cut right to the chase. I grew up in the inner city and about 20 years ago, I moved out here to the northwest edge and um if around me and you go out into the suburbs, it is the Fox News influence is absolutely overpowering. They believe anything they hear on right wing media. But as you travel more towards the inner city, it completely changes. And these are densely populated areas. And uh, the you lose the Fox News effect and, and people don't so much blame Biden. Um, they they favor him over Trump. Um, it's a tribalism issue, too. I, I am convinced. I believe these people in the suburbs are convinced that these big, big liberal Democrats in the city are out to wreck their way of life and blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, the right wing media has got them convinced of that. So, again, that's why they will believe anything. Also, what I find funny is, too, they will say, I'll, I'll kind of debate them at times and they'll say I don't watch Fox News or AON or Newsbacks or any of those other garbage networks and I'm like well where are you getting this from and it's always second hand it's a talking point from one of these sources but they uh -huh. get it from their father-in-law their brother I heard at the barbecue I threw last night my brother-in-law told me that and you know yeah I mean this is what we're up against and I'd also like to say real quickly with what SCOTUS did, I fully expected them to pull an underhanded stunt like that in favor of Donald Trump. I, I set my sights low, and I was not disappointed. I, I was disappointed, but I wasn't shocked. Yeah. This is what we're up against again. And I yeah. just want to squeeze in real quick. Uh, these people pushing for a third party or threatening to let Trump win because of what's going on in Gaza, I don't <laughs> I don't support Netanyahu. I do not support Hamas. It's a horrible situation all the way around. That's, I cannot go into detail on that. Yeah, take I understand. Too much yeah, and I, um, I'm, I'm right there. I'm right there with you uh, on that, Phil. We have to take a real quick break. I'm going to be back with Amanda Marcotta, senior writer at Salon.com, right after this. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm talking with Amanda Marcotte of Salon.com, and we um, have a lot of callers who want to weigh in on all the things that we've been talking about. Let's go to Chicago. Doogie is on the line. Hey, Doogie. Hey, good afternoon. Um, so I look at two things. Um, you earlier said about uh, the women in voting. And uh, the one thing I want to remember about is in like 20, during the 2016 campaign with Hillary versus Trump, I remember it was like either like Nightline or 2020, one of those shows. And they went around some diners in uh, rural 
you know, wherever it was. And they said, you know, would you vote for Trump or would you vote for Hillary? And the woman, the wife, sitting there at the corner table with the husband said, oh, no, women do not belong in power. They belong in the kitchen. And I was looking at this like with my jaw dropped. They still believe this. Yeah. And so I remember that from 2016. The other thing that I wanted to mention really quickly is, for me, the most dangerous person in a democracy is the single-issue voter. And I'm going to tell you why. Because whether it's abortion, whether it's tax cuts, whatever the idea might be, they're willing to vote for that one person that's going to get that single issue passed for them, and they're going to throw out the baby with the bathwater and save the rubber ducky. <laughs> they don't care about what anything else is going to happen. And we already know that the Republicans want to take us back to 1860, and they're oblivious to that just to get this border thing, abortion, taxes, whatever it is. And it's so frustrating. And that's the most dangerous thing is an uneducated single-issue voter. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that, Doogie. Amanda, I also think we have... The one-issue voter, yeah. Uh, the low-information voters, yeah. But um, I, I was listening to Tara McGowan of the Courier Newsrooms speaking a while back, and she's been in both politics and journalism, and her premise is that if Democrats want to win, the best way for them to win, they're not going to win over Trump voters. They're maybe not even going to have much influence with independent voters. But there are a lot of Democratic voters who just don't vote, who just yeah. um, just don't pay attention, just don't vote. Oh, they're too busy. They're this, they're that. And she said in, in, in elections where you can get the people who agree with Democratic values to actually get out and get to the polls, that's when you see Democratic victories. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that's true. Time and time again, all political science shows this. Like, Republican voters tend to be more fanatical, which means that they pay more attention to politics. Now, the information they're getting is bad information. They... they they obsess over politics day and night. I'm sure if you know Republicans, you know that this is true, that they're way more likely to be online talking about politics. They're more likely to be watching cable news. They're much more likely to share political information. The problem, of course, is everything they're sharing is lies and BS, but they are definitely like engaged. There's no doubt about it. Whereas Democratic voters, like there's a percentage of them, like you and me, and I imagine many listeners to this show, who are also very engaged, um, listening to better information for sure. Um, but they are, we are just a fraction of the Democratic coalition. It's a diverse coalition. There's just a lot of people in this country who don't care that much about politics. Like, they are busy. You know, for instance, mm -hmm. Democrats tend to be younger, which means they're just not like Republicans are dominated by retired people, elderly retired people like Democrats have a lot more people that are still working. Democrats have a lot of people who have young children at home who, you know, as anyone who's been a parent mm -hmm. in this listening audience can tell you, that's just like turns into a full time job in and of itself. Democrats tend to have more like hobbies and they're into art or they're into music or they're into sports they're into <laughs> yeah. other stuff. they have distractions and they are uh, they yeah. don't uh, they don't live and breathe this stuff the way we do you know i bef before we wrap this up i've seen some interesting 
are uh, trends. You know, we've been I talk about media a lot. We do a big monthly media segment. You know, how can journalists do their job better? And I'm beginning to think that the people who are being most nimble about this, who are reacting to the fact that what we have is not a normal situation, seems to be uh, the local media. There was an interesting article published by the Arizona Mirror saying we're ditching junk food election coverage to focus on what's at stake when we vote. And there was this um, opinion from a guy, a local reporter by the name of Kyle Clark, who works for Next Nine News in Colorado. Listen to the um, opinion piece that he aired. We do point by point fact checking here and a lot of it because it is important that we all live in a shared reality, a place where people hold all kinds of different views about a common set of facts. That's really the only way that people can make informed decisions. When journalists don't fact check, when they repeat falsehoods as a he said, she said, that's not harmless. That's actively harmful to our community. Because once made up claims get into people's minds, they're awful tough to get out. The people spreading misinformation know that. They count on that. Around here, they can also count on getting called out for it. Whether it's the Denver mayor's homeless initiative numbers not adding up or these fake claims that thousands of migrants are being brought to live in Lakewood schools, whether the claim comes from a source that you like or a source that you don't like, you deserve a clear explanation of what's true and what's not. And that really is where the conversation begins, not ends, because then you layer on your views to the foundation of facts in our shared reality. So I invite your views now about this particular approach to journalism and community and how it might be improved. I saw that, Amanda, and I was like, I wanted to stand up and cheer. Um, I'm certainly not seeing that kind of attitude from The New York Times, but maybe if it happens over and over again at the local level, we can save this thing we call democracy. What's your reaction to that essay? I mean, I'm not surprised because I think, you know, what local newspapers get that national media doesn't is they're more embedded in their communities. And so they've seen up close and personal how the MAGA movement is tearing people apart. They, like in Arizona, you know, the journalists in, in the local Arizona press are full well aware that what has happened is violence threats of violence, election officials are constantly being threatened. They know, they, they know the people that are being threatened with violence, being threatened with death. They, they know what's going on, so they can't, they can't pretend that, you know, things like the big lie or, you know, the, any MAGA disinformation is, like, no big deal, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that... You know, that's true here in Pennsylvania. Like, there's been violence at political events. In Michigan, there's been violence. And it makes it a lot harder to look away, right? And I think that they understand that. The problem is that local media is basically bankrupting and closing really fast. Like, so many local newspapers are disappearing. It's one of the reasons that politics has gotten so national 
And unfortunately, the national coverage is, as you said, very horse race oriented, not stake oriented. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I I saw that, and I thought that, you know, I wish that. It, it's it's obvious. I think I think a lot of journalists try to function that way, but I think that it's important to to have that message out there and to say this is how we work and this is how um, we function and this is how we're going to bring you the facts and what you do with that yeah that's up to you but you're we're going to make sure that what you hear from us is honest because sometimes I think that's part of the problem um, like I've talked to people who just don't even understand that the editorial pages of a, of a newspaper like like the Wall Street Journal are different from the reporting pages and that it's almost like two separate businesses, two separate entities. People don't really understand. When people don't understand how journalists work, it's much easier to believe that everything is biased and everything is um, is is not not reliable. And I think what what Kyle did is something more of us should do. Not just here's our reporting, but here's our mission statement, if you will. What What do you think? Do you think that's overboard? No, I think I wish more uh, journalists did it. Like, like you said, like the New York Times instead is taking this defensive crouch, um, refusing to do stuff like that. And, and the reason is very obvious, which is they decided that it's to their benefit somehow or lucrative somehow to push this, you know, anti-Biden, soft on Trump agenda, uh, this both sides mentality, this horse race mentality, because I think, you know, it benefits them if everything's kind of close and contentious, whereas, you know, local journalists, you know, have to live in the communities that are being affected by this. And so... They can't afford to just like, and and obviously local newspapers do not get more subscribers because of Donald Trump being president. So, yeah, yeah, Um, Amanda, I really want to thank you. It's it's clear you've got a cold and I really want to give you, you know, a hazardous (laughs) duty pay for being here today. Oh, I don't have a cold. I'm just. I just spend all the February like stuffed up. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, okay then. Then never mind. You don't get the hazardous pay. <laughs> I, I, I have to be honest. I, I I'm fine. Thank you. Well, good. I'm I'm glad to hear it. I will I will no longer worry because at, at the start I was like, oh my god. Thank God she decided not to cancel. She's so brave. Um, but you are, you are brave, but in a different way. Uh, Amanda is the senior uh, writer at Salon.com. She writes about politics. She writes about Trump. Um, we're going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. The clerk of the Circuit Court of Cook County. It's not a super high profile job. It's not a particularly sexy job, but it's a really, really important job. The circuit court clerk of Cook County manages court records and court orders, um, works with uh, more than 400 different judges who hear all kinds of cases, traffic, civil, criminal, um, that cases that take place in Chicago and in suburban Cook County. 
Um, the office collects and disperses fees and fines for the court. Uh, there is a current incumbent, Iris Martinez, who um, is in her first term and would very much like to have a second. Uh, but she is facing a significant challenge from Mariana Spiropoulos, who uh, has uh, a lot of backing from the Democratic Party. Mariana joins us now to talk about her campaign. Hello, Mariana. How are you? Hi, Joan. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Now, you have been a commissioner on the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District of Greater Chicago, right? Yes, and, I've been there for 13 years. Yes, and uh, tell us about your work in that position. So as a commissioner, um, there's nine commissioners on the board at the uh, MWRD and at the countywide agency that treats waste, wastewater and manages stormwater with a billion-dollar budget and over 2,000 employees. Uh, the commissioners are involved in policy uh, as well as, um, you know, developing and making sure that we have a balanced budget. Um, I served as president uh, for two terms. I uh, also was chairman of finance and I'm on the pension board. I've been there for 10 years. Uh, so happy to say that we've had a balanced budget every year as well as a AAA bond rating. Um, and our pension is going in the right direction uh, to be fully funded. Um, so we're in pretty good shape, and I'd like to take a, a little bit of credit for that, um, having served in various capacities um, at the agency. My approach has always been fiscal responsibility, making sure our tax dollars are being used um, wisely, um, as well as transparency. Um, I advocated for an inspector general at the agency, um, which we eventually passed, um, and wanting to make sure that veterans have access to contracts, um, as well as um, equity and inclusion um, at our age agency as well. How would you operate the clerk's office differently than it's operated now, or what changes would you like to see? Well, um, let's see. We only have a half hour, so uh, <laughs> there's a lot of changes I'd like to see, but um, I can give you sort of the biggies right now. Um, number one would be ethics and transparency. Um, today, I got the endorsement of the Daily Herald, um, and their endorsement was um, basically uh, dependent on my, my platform of ethics and transparency. I want to see an in independent inspector general. And when I talk about independent, it's not someone who reports to the clerk. You need to create an environment where employees feel comfortable to be able to uh, express concerns, um, you know, things that could be investigated. And you need to create that environment where, where they know there's not going to be retaliation. There's not going to be um, any kind of um, pressure for them to back down. If they feel that there's a concern, it should be explored. Um, um, I want to clarify something. Um, so mm -hmm. the process that's in place right now with the office is that if somebody um, wants to be a whistleblower about something, they go to the inspector general, but then the inspector general uh, reports directly to the clerk. Is that is that the way it works now? Exactly. That's exactly how it works right now. Um, and, you know, the current administration talks about the inspector general being independent. Um, by saying that their office is on a different floor or in a different building. That doesn't make them independent because that, at the end of the day, like you said, that person reports to the clerk. Um, and to me, that's not independent. 
Um, and number two, you know, we'd want to make sure that technology um, is going to work for everybody. You should be able to access your next court date through an app or on your phone. You should be able to access that information because currently people need to, if, you're, if you don't have an attorney, you have to go through the website to find out when your next court date is. And if you have to take, if that website is down, because oftentimes it's, it's been crashing lately. For example, last summer it was down for two weeks. Uh, people have to take a day off of work or they have to find child care to be able to go down to the courthouse to find out, um, you know, when their next court date is. And if they don't and they have a default judgment against them, you know, that could result in a real impact in terms of a loss of, of wages. It could be a loss of custody. You could have an eviction that takes place. Um, so we need people to have access to when their next court date is. That's really important. And third, I want to bring the court system to communities. And what I mean by that is working with community groups as well as uh, pro bono legal, legal clinics and faith leaders and uh, helping people, like setting up pop-up legal clinics where we would go to different communities once a month to help people file their documentation um, and provide access to justice um, in, a, in a lot more user-friendly user way than it is right now. Um, <clears throat> there um, have been questions raised about Iris Martinez and people in her office contributing to her campaign. She has said that she has had nothing to do with that one way or the other, and that some of the people who work in her office have been longtime supporters of hers. And in other words, that she has done really nothing to um, let them, you know, pressure them into supporting her. Uh, she does not have the support of the Democratic Party. You do. And her mm -hmm. argument is that... Um, she needs more time that she's done a lot since uh, she took over from Dorothy Brown and she would wants to keep going. And um, she also basically feels that because you come from a wealthy family, that that has put, sort of put a thumb on the scale. And part of the reason why you've gotten as much support and as many endorsements as you have is because of the potential financial support that you can offer and your family can offer to Democrats and the Democratic Party. What is your response to that? Well, there's a lot to unpack in that. Um, that yeah, I realize comment. that was so, a kind of a multi-compound sentence, and I, kind okay. of, I apologize me, for that. I could have no, broken that down easily into three or four sentences. No worries. I'll, I'll try to do my best. Okay, so let's... So she um, has had, uh, she's in her first term, that is correct, and she does want to hold on to um, the position because uh, there's a lot of friends and family that have been hired in the office, um, and, uh, you know, obviously they want to hold on to those jobs. Um, basically what's happening is the people have uh, been getting raises and then have been asked to make donations. Um, you've also got the assistant inspector general helping uh, circulate petitions, which means gathering signatures to get on the ballot. You need to have a bright line between politics and government. There can't be this sort of blending between the two. Um, and so the, I will not be accepting donations from employees when I get into the clerk's office. Um, but, you know, in terms of uh, I'm the daughter of immigrants, my parents came over with nothing. Um, and, you know, 
immigrants come over to the United States because they seek opportunity, they work hard, they sacrifice, and that's what my parents did. And I'm grateful for that. Um, I am grateful for the, the courage that they took to, to take that step to come over. They stressed education, so I went to law school. Um, I served in, as an assistant state's attorney uh, for several years in Cook County. Then I opened my own law practice, so I understand the legal system. I understand the court system. I'm bringing that background to uh, my work at the clerk's office. I'm also bringing my government background. So I'm combining those two experiences to approach this office. Um, I think it's... Go ahead. ahead. Please go ahead. No, I think it's important that people understand that also the Teamsters that represent three-quarters of the employees in this office are endorsing my campaign. They're not endorsing the incumbent because they do not have any confidence in the management that is in that office right now. I we think need that's to, a lot. I just was going to say we need to take a quick break. I'm talking to Mariana Spiropoulos, who is running to be the clerk of the Circuit Court of Cook County. We're going to continue our discussion right after our break. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Mariana Spiropoulos is running to be the clerk of the Circuit Court of Cook County. She has been a part of the um, Water Reclamation District, and uh, she is um, ready to move on from that experience. Mariana, I know that in some of your literature, it says that your experience as an attorney makes you the best candidate to lead the office of the clerk of the Circuit Court of Cook County. Talk about how being an attorney will influence or affect how you would do the job. Well, I think um, my experience as an attorney has uh, made me understand uh, the importance of the proper documents uh, to be filed, where they need to be filed. For example, you know, in the traffic division versus uh, various other divisions, probate division, chancery, um, you know, what needs to be filed and where, the importance of it. And if you don't have that documentation, what can happen? Um, We also have... Um, let me point out that we have one of the um, the longest continuances um, rates in the United States for felony trials here in Cook County. And um, you're going to have continuances in cases. But something that the clerk's office can do is monitor that. Um, and I have a lot of experience, like I said, as an attorney um, and where there are continuances or not. But if a clerk in a courtroom can keep track of that throughout the entire system and then analyze that with the chief judge's office, we could try to reduce those number of continuances that we have. We can look at where the bottleneck is. So, um, you know, understanding the position of the judge, understanding, you know, what what attorneys and how they operate in the courtroom, having been there myself gives me, uh, you know, sort of an inside look in terms of how the whole system should operate. Earlier in our interview, you said one of the important changes that you wanted to make, it would be to make the inspector general's office independent. Would that take an ordinance on the part of the city council? How would you accomplish that? So, no, city council would not be involved in that. This is a countywide office. So although it includes the city of Chicago, it also includes 125 surrounding uh, suburbs as well. So it would be the county. Um, We would certainly work with the Cook County commissioners 
as well as President uh, Tony Preckwinkle uh, of the Cook County Board to see how we could accomplish that. So I would start discussions, um, you know, regarding the inspector general as soon as I uh, start my administration. Why do you want to make this change? I mean, you've um, accomplished a lot where you are. Um, why, do, why suddenly wanting to do something else? Well, I think that, you know, this office has not been working for a very long time. And while I was an attorney, there were always, you know, discussions about how the clerk's office could work better. But most recently, it's it's hit a really, um, I think, crucial, crucial moment. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So most recently, um, uh, in May of last year, uh, the clerk's office is supposed to take low-level felonies off of people's records once they satisfy the restorative justice program requirements. And many individuals were doing that, and they were supposed to have uh, the felonies removed from their record. Well, the public defender, who was representing many of, many of the people that were going through the program, indicated these felonies were not being removed. And when the uh, the clerk's office, you know, was notified of that. All they did was point the finger at the chief judge and said, it's not our responsibility, when in fact it is their responsibility. When you're running for leadership, you're supposed to be able to come up with solutions, sit down with stakeholders and, and decide and figure out how you're going to solve these problems, number one. Um, number two, most recently, um, there, the, the clerk's office was trying to put criminal records online and expose the identities of 5,000 juveniles, um, which is against the law. Those identities are supposed to be protected. And that's mismanagement, and that's incompetence, as far as I'm concerned. An individual most recently, another this is another story, um, was wrongfully convicted. And when new evidence came out, he was released. He got a certificate of innocence from the Supreme Court and moved to another state to, to start a new life. And... He uh, couldn't because there was a felony on his record, which the clerk's office was supposed to take off of his record. So you've got one case after another. Um, you had 50 employees in that office that were defrauding the federal government by taking PPP loans um, for businesses that they didn't have. Um, and, you know, you, you got to set the tone for the office. Uh, by saying, you know, this stuff is not going to be tolerated. These are not the kind of people that we need working in this office. Now, there's, there are good people in that office um, who are doing good work, but I, need, I would uh, do an audit of this office in terms of the fines and fees that you spoke about earlier. I would go in and set up a strategic plan. I would have uh, regular ethics training so that individuals in the office know, know what's expected of them. Um, and that we're all working uh, towards the same thing. What would be included in your strategic plan? I would want to set metrics. So, for example, uh, one of the first things I do is go around and talk to all the employees. There's 1,400 employees in this office. Meet each of them at the place where they're working. Have them talk to me about, you know, what goes on, what are the practices that go on, uh, and what they need to be able to do their job more effectively. Do they need resources? Do they need training? Um, and sometimes these employees have the best ideas on how to improve the process where they're working. So I'd want to hear that as well and have them buy in 
to the strategic plan that we would set up, which is that we want professionalism, we want ethics, um, we want an atmosphere where people feel free, as I spoke about before, where they feel free to, to bring up wrongdoing if they see it or inefficiencies if they see that as well, um, so that you know, we can improve the office and make sure that it works for everybody. You talked about getting the Teamsters endorsement. How did you get that? Did you um, have to go to the main office and make a presentation? How did that happen? So I met with the um, the Teamsters. Uh, we're meeting with all of the uh, with the candidates that were running for the office, and I, I spoke to them, and um, they gave me you know different scenarios on, on how would you handle this, how would you handle that. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, they decided that they wanted to support me. Um, but, you know, the other thing is that they have a lot of um, uh, concerns in the office because they have said that there is uh, there's bullying going on in the office. There's intimidation. There's an unprofessional atmosphere. There's disrespect towards the employees there. Um, and they don't want that to continue because their employees cannot operate under those kind of conditions in that kind of environment. Well, speaking of endorsements, um, generally the Democratic Party will endorse an incumbent because, you know, the thinking is it's easier to get an incumbent reelected than a newcomer. Yet you got the endorsement of uh, the Democratic Party. What did they say to you? What was the discussion there? Why did they choose you? So um, the Cook County Democratic Party has a process um, where the Democratic Party is made up of committee people, uh, 50 committee people in the city of Chicago representing the 50 wards, and then 30 uh, township committee people representing the various suburbs. Um, and they're all part of the party, um, and they all represent their, their various diverse uh, communities. And um, basically, you go and talk to them. And you say, this is what my idea of how this office should run. And I'm assuming the incumbent did the same thing. And then at one point, you know, you submit your resume, you submit your ideas on on how you'd like to see the office run. You make a presentation before the Cook County Democratic Party. And some of those ideas are what I shared with you today about a reform plan for the office, about, you know, making the technology work, about how transparency is important, how I uh, instituted some of those transparency um, uh, uh, issues at the Water Reclamation District. Um, And, you know, it resonated with a lot of people. So, uh, you know, it's based on that. Uh, They have a pre-slating interview in um, in June, and then the final slating takes place in August. And there's just a lot of conversations about, uh, you know, what are the ideas you want to bring to this? Um, and people know my record from the Water Reclamation District as well. So they know that I follow through on these things, that I, ha- I do have a reform record, um, and that I have a good relationship with a broad spectrum of stakeholders throughout Cook County. I don't have... Um, uh, you know, just one area that I get support from. I build across uh, a lot of different communities because those are the stakeholders of the people that represent Cook County. Do you have a website that you can share with us in case our listeners want to get more information about your campaign? Absolutely. Yes. Citizens for Mariana.com. 
We've okay. got over 100 and 150 different endorsements from organizations and elected officials. Um, like I just said, we just got the Daily Herald today. The Chicago Tribune is endorsing the campaign. Um, Equality Illinois, Citizen Action, IVI, IPO, um, many, many different organizations. Chicago Federation of Labor, Cook County Democratic Party. Does your uh, website have a calendar? Because sometimes people like to go to events and see a candidate in person and and chat with them in person. Well, we uh, just had an event um, earlier this week. Um, We're putting some more together, so we'll we'll put those on there. If people want to sign up for um, email alerts, they can certainly do that via the website. And they can find out what we're doing. We also have phone banking that people can sign up for and a texting program. So uh, people are more than welcome uh, to participate that way as well. Mariana Spiropoulos, thank you so much for being here and uh, giving our listeners um, some insight into what, why you're running for this office and what you want to accomplish. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Joan. I appreciate it. And remember, Spiropoulos rhymes with Metropolis. <laughs> okay, Sparopoulos, <laughs> running for clerk of the Circuit Court of Cook County. Um, um, coming up, you know, we've been talking a lot about in vitro fertilization. There is a state legislature, legislator here in Illinois who uh, is not, we don't have to protect in vitro fertilization in Illinois, But maybe we can even expand it. I'll explain more when we come right back after this. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. We um, saw the reaction, virtually all of it negative, to the Alabama Supreme Court ruling that said, Those little tiny clumps of cells um, that are implanted in people trying to have a baby, well, those are actually children. And then IVF came to a grinding halt in Alabama. Some state legislators there are now trying to get that restarted with protections for medical centers who were terrified that they were going to be either sued or criminally prosecuted um, for uh, what happens with these frozen embryos. Luckily, we are not facing those kinds of challenges here in the state of Illinois. Um, But IVF still isn't available to a lot of people. And even when it is available and paid for by insurance, oftentimes, as as I've said all week, um, it often takes as many as six attempts before in vitro fertilization results in um, a pregnancy. And six attempts aren't always available to people, even on those rare occasions where they have insurance coverage. One of the legislators in Illinois who's addressing that is State Representative Margaret Croak from Illinois' 12th District. And uh, she joins us now to explain what her bill is about. Margaret, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, of course. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. So, um, yeah, talk about the IVF and what your bill, how it would um, affect what happens in Illinois. Yeah, I mean, you kind of hit on it, the problem at least, which is in Illinois, we do mandate um, IVF coverage for state plans, which is amazing. And we're one of 
only, I think, about 20 states that do that. Um, but the problem is that in our current private insurance coverage, we only cover about four cycles of IVF. Um, and when you think about all of the, the percentage of success, which is having a live birth, having a baby, four cycles is resulting in about 30% success rating, but six cycles results in about 70% success. So um, the bill just removes that cap of four cycles that um, private insurance cover in the state of Illinois. So now um, the only uh, individuals that are dictating how many cycles or rounds of IVF someone will be getting is a doctor and the patient, which I love when only, you know, a doctor and a patient are involved in someone's health care decisions, right? Yeah, exactly. Margaret, are you there? So that's what the oh. bill. Yeah, oh, yeah. Good. can you hear me? Yes, I'm sorry. I, I it went quiet in my ear for a second, and I thought we'd lost you. We're having a little bit of technical trouble today. I just want to make sure you're still there. So please go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted. Oh no, I have AT and T. So right for a second, I was like, "Is it all happening again? Have oh, I lost no. all my cell service all over again?" Um, no, and so and then in addition to that, it just also it continues to cover a lot of the testing that's associated with embryos before they're implanted. So um, to make sure that you know, we have less uh, chance of miscarriage and that we have that there's a successful pregnancy, um, there are the genetic testing that are required on embryos, chromosomal testing. Um, and that is also all covered in this bill. The, wonderful. If uh, what kind of support does this bill have? Is it are we likely to see it passed in this session or is this one of those that you're going to have to really work to kind of get the votes? Well, you know, I, I work all my bills, obviously, because uh, <laughs> I guess I, I meant you're going to have to work over like the next year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, I have been so overwhelmed in a positive way with the response to this bill. Um, it has uh, it has Republicans on it. It's a bipartisan bill. One of my chief um, co-sponsors is uh, uh, Representative Stevens, who's a Republican from Rosemont. Um, I was carrying this bill before, obviously, the Alabama decision. I've been a big supporter of IVF. Two years ago, I passed an expansion of IVF for same-sex couples and single women. So this has been an issue that's been top of mind for me for a very long time. Um, and I, I am happy to see in Illinois that really no matter what side of the aisle you are on, um, you want to see IVF um, accessible for individuals, obviously protected, but also something that an individual can, a family can afford to do if that's how they want to start their family. So the response has been amazing. Speaker Welch is also a chief co-sponsor. So I'm really hopeful that we'll be able to move this bill um, out of committee and onto the floor within, within the month. As long as we're on the subject of uh, health care, uh, I'd like you to talk about the bill that you're a part of to fund a pilot program at Illinois Masonic. What's that all about? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So this is something I'm incredibly passionate about. Um, so I have three kids under four. So I'm very, you know, good grief. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, it's a crazy thing. But I I find myself, you know, I've, I've found myself pregnant quite often in the past <laughs> few years. Um, so maternal health care is just something that's so incredibly important to me. Um, and I understand the disparities uh, of, of maternal health care and that, you know, some are, seem to be more fortunate than others in our health care system, which is just completely unacceptable. 
acceptable. And access to maternal health care has become an issue as we see a lot of hospitals closing, a lot of birthing units closing because they are expensive for the hospitals to keep up and birth rates are down. Um, so you have an issue where the hospitals can't afford to continue their birthing units and then also they're not finding physicians that really want to practice in those areas where the birth rate is so low. Um, so what this program um, would do is it's a three-year pilot program, um, and it brings together March of Dimes, which is a nonprofit focused on maternal health care um, and advocate Masonic. Um, March of Dimes provides a totally retrofitted mobile health care clinic um, that provides uh, prenatal and postnatal care, um, and Advocate Masonic staffs it. So the funding would go to Advocate to be able to staff it. Um, and in the three other states where March of Dimes has has started this program with healthcare systems, they're able to see about 2,000 patients per mobile health clinic, which is a huge impact in these areas that have these maternal health care deserts. Um, Advocate Masonic is located in my district, but that does not mean that the healthcare van would be just serving, you know, the Lake, Lakeview, Lincoln Park area. We're very blessed with um, a lot of great maternal health care providers. It'll be able to go in so many different areas of the city to provide services. Um, and it's just something I'm, I'm incredibly passionate about. And um, I think that that is so important as resources. You know, sometimes even when the resources are available, they're just not convenient to people who don't have ready ready access to a car or even yeah. public transportation. Um, I mean, I think getting resources like this, it's sort of like the library doing a bookmobile. And people who don't even know where their local library is and couldn't get there even if they had it have access to books. I think sometimes taking these kinds of services directly to people can really make all the difference in the world. And I think this is a fabulous, uh, fabulous idea. Um, and I was really surprised when I was reading about some of the other things that you're um, sponsoring and co-sponsoring that one of the things that you're working on is a bill to ban corporal punishment in non-public schools, which is something that I would have told anybody is already against the law, for God's sake. I know it's it's. What backwards world are we are we living in, honestly? Um, but so yes, yeah, so this bill is specifically for um, uh, banning corporal punishment in in private schools. Um, right now, we have a policy that kind of plays in, and it pertains to like a school board where the policy can't include corporal punishment. So public schools essentially have a ban on corporal punishment. Um, but recently, our neighbor state Missouri brought back corporal punishment into their public schools um, and uh, there have been a few investigations in other states into some of the private school systems where they have found corporal punishment is still being used um, it's very hard for us to quantify you know the amount of instances where this is occurring because private schools don't have to report to an agency like the Illinois State Board of Education for instance about Wait a minute, their, why not? That's, that's well, crazy. They don't, they don't have to report their, their policy on that type of punishment. Um, it's, a lot of some, some schools, they have a 
They'll have a certificate or um, they'll be registered with the Illinois State Board of Education, but maybe their um, teachers don't necessarily have to be licensed with the Illinois State Board of Education. Um, And if that's the case, the Illinois State Board of Education can't bring um, a, uh, a, I guess, a a mark on that teacher's record or try to revoke their license. Um, Obviously, there are like criminal paths that you could go down. Um, but it, it gets very murky. It's very gray. I think that for everyone's sake, um, we should be just banning corporal punishment in any education uh, situation or institution. Um, and the American um, Association of Pediatrics recently renewed their call, which is where I got the kind of the, the catalyst for all of this was um, the American Association of Pediatrics re- said, hey, everyone, everyone in the, in the country, only four states ban corporal punishment in private schools. Um, and this is something that we really want to bring to the forefront as we see some school districts maybe bringing this practice back. Man, oh, man, it really does feel like we're living in a world that people are trying to turn back to the to the 1950s and the 1960s. I mean, I was in school in in grade school in um, in the mid to late 60s. And um, my parents sent me to parochial schools. And while. Um, generally, they left girls alone. I mean, there was corporal punishment for the boys. And I you know we all just, you know, um, that's where all the jokes and all the skits about nuns and their and their metal rulers and things like that. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's not conducive to a good academic experience that much. I can tell you, because even the people who weren't being hit knew they could be hit. And that kind of um, that kind of fear is just is just not healthy. Uh, having lived through that kind of thing, it's not conducive to to growing uh, thoughtful <laughs> uh, adults capable of critical thinking. So I'm glad that you're moving on this. It does seem like something that um, is is something that whether or not we're doing it here in Illinois, let's get it on the books. So just in case there is some sort of wave across the country to do things differently in our schools, we can stop it before it ever takes a root here. And I think that's a great idea. Uh, one more thing yeah. <clears throat> that I wanted to ask you about, another one of your health-related measures that Governor Pritzker has included as part of his package to reform the health insurance industry, something that he talked about during his state of the state. And I'm not quite sure I grasp what these are, but it has to do with ghost networks. What are these? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so ghost networks, they refer to provider networks. So think of your insurance coverage where you go online and you're looking on in your insurance and you're searching for a provider, whether it's like mental health, specifically this real ghost providers really are more prevalent as it pertains to mental health care. But you, you know, you put in your browser, the search engine, you're like, I need a doctor who's three miles away and is in network because obviously you're thinking about, well, what's the cost of my health care? I got to make sure that my provider is in network. So the ghost provider, you're, you're in, you're in the search engine looking for this. Um, and it's when that 
search history, essentially, whatever is populated, the directory of the insurance um, provider is filled with providers that are not actually in network, aren't taking new patients, aren't in the same location that you search for. I search for that three-mile radius. They're not Mm -hmm. in that three-mile radius or they may not even be practicing at all anymore. So what can happen is that in the worst case scenario, which does happen, I'm in my search engine, I find my provider, I schedule my appointment, I go to the appointment, I get my health care, thinking that this provider is a network, and then a week later, two weeks later, I get hit with a bill saying that this provider is out of network and I have to pay this all out of pocket. Um, that that's what a ghost network is. So what the bill is trying to do is eliminate ghost networks by requiring insurance companies to essentially do an audit of their directories, 25% of their directory annually, um, report that out to DOI, DOI and DOI being the Department of Insurance. Um, they would also do audits of these directories. And we're trying to eliminate that because I cannot think of a worse scenario where yeah. you know someone finally is like, I'm going to seek mental health care. Like, it's so hard to take that first step. They take that step, they find a provider, and then they're hit with this cost. Like, what a barrier to wanting to seek additional help if, if that was your experience. Does this happen simply, is this like a bookkeeping thing? You know, maybe this provider was associated with this insurance company and then they moved away or they decided to stop taking the insurance and it was just never updated? Or is there something nefarious behind this? Or is it just, you know, bureaucratic um, ignorance? I would say, I'm going to say, I I mean, I'm going to believe that I think that it is just a lack of um, motivation on the side of the insurance plans to provide or to update their directories. I think it looks good for many insurance companies to show how many providers are in their network in a way of like marketing almost. And they're not kind of giving the whole story. And some in some instances too, you know, you have providers that can go in and out of network. So you may have a provider that's in network, but for some reason in the next year or couple months or, you know, how many, whatever time period, they're going to no longer be in network and you schedule your appointment maybe three weeks out because it's been impossible to get an appointment. I'm sure a lot of people experienced this during COVID. It was so hard to get an appointment with a mental health care provider. Um, but now all of a sudden, you know, three weeks later, your provider is no longer in network, but that's when your appointment was. So I'm going to choose to believe that, you know, it's, it's mostly administrative and that they're, the insurance companies are going to say there's a burden on them to be able to update these directories, but I think that the bill is very reasonable in asking that they audit 25% of their directories, um, you know, annually and, and review them. Well, I think that's really smart and more so even than just cleaning up the roles and making sure 
that the people listed as in-network are indeed in-network, because I've had the experience when I was looking for a new doctor, and I did exactly what you just described. You go, you log on to your insurance company because you know you don't want to go with somebody out of network if you don't have to, and you you know put in the kind of doctor you're looking for, and all these names come up, and there's usually like you know where they're how how many miles they are away from your house, and um, and whether or not they're taking new patients and a few other items that are of interest to somebody looking for a new doctor. And I found mm-hmm. that even if the doctors were still in network, a lot of times when it says, I, there was, I forget when this was, but I went through a whole list of like five or six people and it all said that they were taking new patients. And yet when I contacted, contacted the doctor or the doctor's office, they were like, oh no, we're, we're not, no, we're not, no, we're not taking new patients. And no, no, we, we can't, there, nobody in this practice is taking new patients. We have, we don't have any recommendations for you. And then you go back to the website and then you're like, okay, who's the next closest or my next favorite pick? And it, it was over and over and over again. So they really don't pay attention to the, how up to date those websites are. Yeah, for sure. And the other point of this bill, too, is, you know, if you get into a situation, which I think it is still bound to happen, where you have someone who goes to a provider thinking that they are in network, but then they end up being out of network, um, the bill says that every insurance company has to very explicitly explain a step-by-step process to um, challenge the um, the charge that they receive, that out-of-network charge, how they go about challenging that bill. And then also, if it's shown that the provider was on that list of directories and it was shown that the provider was in-network, according to that, you know, your search, and then you went and they're out of network, the insurance company is going to be liable to pay that out-of-cost expense. So there is also an enforcement mechanism on this bill, which I think is really important. In addition to the bills that you are sponsoring or co-sponsoring, what else is coming up in this legislative session? What other bills that you're excited about and think that we could, could benefit from knowing about? Oh gosh, excited about. Um, <laughs> I um, there are a few things that I think are going to move after the um, after maybe in April. I think the next thing that is on the docket is probably going to be the, the Chicago Elected School Board and what that looks like. Whether it's going to be a hybrid board where you've got ten uh, board members elected and eleven appointed for a period of time, um, and then it phases out to a fully elected school board, or maybe it's going to be the fully elected school board right away. Um, There are still negotiations going on, but I think that's going to be the first big piece of legislation that we vote on um, in the next few weeks. And then other than that, there's going to be a lot of conversations about the budget because this is really the first year where there is no ARPA funding. There's no leftover money from the feds. Um, We're going to have some budgetary constraints 
And we know that there is a lot of need, um, especially with the, you know, the migrant crisis, um, with uh, uh, ARPA funding going out for early childhood education providers. Um, there's just a lot of need and really, really difficult decisions are going to have to be made in order for us to stay above water um, on the budget and make sure the state continues to be financially stable. Are um, you making any endorsements that we need to know about in the upcoming um, election on the 19th? Oh, I um, primaries are hard, right, yeah. Joan? I mean, primaries, for me, it's usually, you know, you want to come out of this all being friends on the other hand, <laughs> on the other end. Um, I have really stayed out for the most part on a lot of different, uh, a lot of the elections. The one that I have decided to get more involved in is I have endorsed um, Eileen O'Neill Burke for, for Cook County State's Attorney. I haven't had a chance to speak with her on this radio show. Give us give us um, the reason for your endorsement and what really you really like about her. Um, I think the thing that speaks most to me is that she's spent such a long time in in the judicial branch. I mean, she's been a judge, she's been a prosecutor, she's been a criminal defense attorney, and that's where she spent her career um, for the past 25 years. So she's got a lot of experience. And the other thing is that when she talks about the office, um, not only does she talk about, you know, equity, but also wanting to keep our neighborhood safe. She talks about being a manager of that office and how important it is that that office really be the first step for some of these attorneys to learn and grow and get experience and expertise because that's what the state's attorney's office is. It's got a lot of amazing, incredible lawyers, um, and they've got a lot of new lawyers, um, a lot of people who come out of law school wanting to do public service and get skills because gosh knows we do not pay them the same rate as those big firms. So when you go into these offices, you want to you want to learn and you want to do public service. And the way that um, Eileen talks about wanting to teach that group of individuals, I think, is really um, is, is really important. Wonderful. Uh, State Representative Margaret Croak represents Illinois' 12th district. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Um, one thing that I want to uh, share with you guys before we wrap up today, I don't know if any of you subscribe to Illinois Playbook. It is a newsletter uh, written um, pretty much every day by Shia Kapos, and it is really, I've said this before, anything that you want to know that's of importance that's going on in the state of Illinois, um, that is the best place to catch up and find out. Uh, who's doing what to whom and who's running for what office. It's really, it's really concentrated. It doesn't take a long time to read and it will really make you much smarter about what's going on in the state of Illinois. Uh, today she had a link to an obituary and, um, I'm really glad she did, uh, because it is really touching and moving and worth reading. Gary Sinise, who many of us remember as a founding member of Steppenwolf Theater, who went on um, to a big movie and television career. Remember, he was in Forrest Gump. He was Lieutenant Dan. He formed a Lieutenant Dan band that raises money for veterans' causes. Uh, Gary Sinise's son uh, died in January. 
and he has just recently written about his son. Um, his son was diagnosed in September of 2018 with an extremely, as Gary describes it, a one in a million cancer. It is called a uh, chordoma, and it is basically a a tumor that occurs at either the base of the head or on the spinal cord. And in most cases, surgery, which removes the tumor, in 70% of cases, just getting rid of the tumor leads to a cure. But in 30% of the cases, the cancer recurs. And Gary Sinise's son, Mac, had that happen. And he has been going through various surgeries and treatments uh, since then, working on his music with his dad. And um, finally, the cancer won this January. And um, Gary wrote a very moving testimony to his son. You can find it as there's a link, like I said, in Illinois Playbook, or you can go to GarySiniseFoundation.org slash Mac hyphen tribute. And uh, Gary Sinise is one of the people I know we in our area are most proud of and feel a connection to. And I'm telling you, this is it is a very positive as positive as something like this can be um, testament to his son and it is definitely worth your time and we wish all of our good thoughts to gary and his family that's going to do it for me today uh driving it home with patty vasquez is next richard chu is here tomorrow at 6 a.m and i will see you tomorrow at two stay safe have a great evening good night